Today's scripture reading comes from three separate passages. John 13, 34, and 35. I give you a new command, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. John 17, 20 and 21. I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. And 1 Corinthians twelve twenty six. So if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Trinity. Hey, it's great to be with you guys again, and I, I hope you've been well. A lot has been going on. Well, by all accounts, this has been one of the most contentious, charged, consequential elections that we've had in a really long time. And wow, what a oh, there's been just so much drama. Um, a lot of states with super narrow margins, and we're still obviously waiting for some final tallies, even though even though uh, looks like we have a new president. Um, but the election has shown that we are a divided nation. And it's not just numbers, right? I think relationally we all have experienced this. People viewing the other side with distrust, even disdain, saying that they're um, ignorant or corrupted or dangerous. Families, friendships have been strained. Um, maybe even divided. I see that actually even in, even in my own family. And perhaps today amongst ourselves, uh, some of us are in very different places. Maybe some of us today, we're celebrating because there are good things that we believed in, hope for, dangers that we were afraid of, and for now, things have gone our way. Others of us, perhaps we're, we're mourning, we're grieving because there are good things that we believed in, hoped for, dangers that we were afraid of, and for now things look like they have not gone our way. And I think, I think it is appropriate to have a moment to celebrate or to grieve because it has been a long season. There's been so much rhetoric, so much drama, so many hopes, so many fears, and uh, it may take a moment to, to come to terms with, with what has finally happened. I think it's appropriate to celebrate or to grieve, but I don't think that's to be the end of our process. We're not, we're not supposed to just stay there because I believe we need to move toward unity. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 says, if one, one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. If I stub my toe, my whole body hurts. Right? If I smell good food, my whole body is happy. And so the Apostle Paul is calling us to identify ourselves as belonging to the same body, that we're, we're together and we recognize that not just cognitively, we recognize that emotionally, empathetically, we enter each other's joys and sorrows. And it matters to us how the other person feels. That's important to us. We honor and care for one another so that there would be no division in the body. So how do we do that? 
How might Trinity and the American church more broadly, how do we do this? How might we come together, empathize with one another? How might we promote unity? And for some of us, perhaps there is a, a, a more fundamental question, and that is, do we even want to? Because if we're honest with ourselves, it, it's a lot of work to try to build the bridges and repair the damage against what has become a very big divide. It's a lot easier just to stay with people who agree with us and sneer at the other side. For some of us, this may not be our struggle. Uh, we may not have actually cared that much about the election, and we are just so happy that it's over. I think actually we're all happy that it's over. Um, but even so, I hope today that you will, you will consider with me, how do Christians respond when we disagree? Because I've seen uh, numerous articles and posts, various Christian leaders expressing this concern that we are divided as a church. And I share that concern and call us to become united. And more than myself or, you know, these other posts and articles, Scripture itself has so much to say about against division and divisiveness and for unity and coming together, breaking down barriers, becoming one. If you consider the disciples, uh, they were uh, an interesting group, a divided group. On one hand, you had a tax collector who didn't just support the Roman oppressive power. He, he benefited greatly, got very rich from, from supporting the Romans. And then there was, there was also a zealot. That means this, this guy was willing to go to extreme measures to overthrow the Roman oppressors. It's like having a, a Black Lives Matter protester and a white supremacist in the same small group. I mean, imagine the tension. Imagine the difficulties and the struggles there. The early church also had a lot of divisions. I mean, there are Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free, men and women. And yet the church was called to come together, that this was to be a place where those distinctions didn't separate, but that there were people of different ethnicities and cultures, different backgrounds, all coming together because of Jesus. And in that sense, the call to racial inclusivity and the call to unity after a divisive season come together. It is the same gospel that breaks down walls of division and creates a united, inclusive, new society. When Jesus was leaving, uh, about to leave, about to go to the cross, he gave a final command to his disciples, as we heard, that they're to love one another. And I sense in Jesus, he's saying, I'm not going to be with you guys anymore, and I want you to stay together, stick together, help each other. You got to support each other because things are not going to be easy, and a divided house will not endure. And then he says, and this is how people will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another, that this was to be a distinguishing mark to describe this early community of Jesus' followers. A couple chapters later, Jesus prays 
and he prays that we would be one even as he and the Father are one. When you think about that, that's not just we get along, there's affinity, we like each other. He is speaking beyond natural human unity. Our unity is to be a participation in the divine. It's a supernatural unity, and it was to be an apologetic. It was to give reason for the world to believe that Jesus really is from God. The church loving one another, then, is the key to helping us through our, our struggles and trials, of which 2020 has many, as well as giving light to the world to show who we are and to show who Jesus is. So that for us, even more than the outcome of the election, what should matter more is how we treat one another, how we respond to each other. Pastor and author Andy Stanley in a recent Times article said this, your political candidate will win or lose based on how American citizens vote on a Tuesday in November. But the church wins or loses. The community wins or loses. And in some ways, our nation wins or loses based on how Christians love each other. That's what's at stake. So, that doesn't mean we always agree. That doesn't mean there won't be conflicts. There will be. And sadly, sometimes I think it even means we may go our separate ways. But it does mean, in spite of all those things, that we strive for mutual understanding and respect. We show grace and kindness. We pray for each other. We seek to live in the Spirit, and we recognize that that Spirit is not divided. That Spirit wants to bring us toward Jesus, and in doing so, toward one another. Ultimately, we believe that what brings us together is greater than what pulls us apart. So why are we so polarized? I think, actually, that would be a fascinating conversation. And uh, if we were to sit down one evening, I'd love to hear your thoughts. But here are some things that I've thought of. I recently saw this Netflix documentary, Social Dilemma, which, by the way, I recommend. And it shows how these social network algorithms feed us things that we like, we agree with, uh, we, we want to see, we want to hear, so that we wind up being in echo chambers, just hearing the things that we already know and like and agree with. And let me add, I think we like it there. It feels good to have everybody agree with you and tell you how right you are and how, you know, yeah, you should feel that way. I heard someone say, why would I want to listen to people who make me feel bad? <laughs> right? If you don't have to, isn't it so much easier just to listen to the people who make you feel good? Social media has only accelerated a trend that has gone on for recent decades where we cluster in like-minded communities. Some have called this the big sort. And when like-minded people gather, the tendency over time is not to become more moderate. It is to become more extreme. As an aside, I think this sorting actually happens in churches. We self-select churches 
that make us feel comfortable, that uh, we fit in, where people honestly are a lot like ourselves. Daniel Bennett, a political science professor and president of Christians in Political Science, adds another component. He says the average American is not very politically ideological. It's not really about the science of these views of government. We're not fighting really about ideas. Instead, he says this, a better explanation for polarization then has to do with partisanship. People attached to political parties, and as parties have grown more distinct, people have been more prone to view politics as simply a game to be won. Politics has become a sport. You know, you, you have your team, you root for your team, and you want to win and beat the other team. It is by, na by nature becoming polarized, right? We, we fight against. We also have cancel culture, where we effectively shut out the voices of those who don't agree with us. We don't debate or dialogue or engage in conversation. We just turn them off. We leave. Maybe, maybe we leave that church. So that what we have is this polarization has created an inability and or an unwillingness to hash things out, to have the conversation, to resolve our conflicts, to work together. Instead, we don't want to listen. We don't want to engage. And maybe we don't even know how to anymore. We just want to win. We live in a world where I think everyone is shouting at the same time and nobody is listening. Consider how this plays out with Christians and, uh, and politics. You know, there was a time when evangelical Christians wouldn't think of themselves as conservatives or as liberals. They thought of themselves as Christians. And as Christians, they would advocate for personal holiness, what some might consider a, a conservative ideal. But at the same time, they would also advocate for legislation to help the, the poor or the, the disadvantaged, what some might consider a progressive ideal. They just were trying to be Christian. But along the way, I would like to suggest that I'd say the white evangelical church aligned itself with one political party, particularly around the issue of abortion. The African-American church aligned itself with the other political party. And I think once Christians align themselves with a political party, there is a strong tendency to more quickly see the strengths of one party and not see their weaknesses, and then more quickly see the weaknesses of the other party and not see their strengths. And then you add the Bible in and, and you start using the Bible to show why one political party is more biblical and the other is more secular. Just want to offer a word of caution. If the main voices that you've heard through this political season, Christian or otherwise, have presented a picture where there's a good side and a bad side, right? A biblical side and a dangerous side. Like this one is Christian and that one is demonic. If that's what you've heard, I want, I'd encourage you to press pause. I'd encourage you to recognize that 
because of these political alignments, there, I'd say there tends to be this kind of bias. And because there's this bias, those voices do not give us an objective story. They tell us their biased perspective. And if that's true, then perhaps we can hold and express our opinions with humility, with some reservation. Another dangerous of aligning with political parties is that there's a tendency to then feel like you have to adopt the whole platform of that party. There's a term, ideological identity, where we so identify ourselves as a liberal or a conservative that we just accept the ideas and policies of the liberals or the conservatives, not on the basis of their merits, not because of scripture, but because of our ideological alignment. Some have called it package deal ethics. You just got to take the whole package as it comes so that even if there are things that you may not completely agree with, or there are things that the other party has that you do agree with, you tend to keep quiet. Instead, we must use scripture to critique all parties, all platforms, all positions. Pastor Eric wrote, I thought, a really wonderful guide to politics based on the book of Daniel. I'm going to quote some of Pastor Eric here. If we are unwilling to support policies consistent with scripture, but inconsistent with our preferred party, we are representing that party before Jesus. If we're unwilling to see and speak against evil in our leaders or policies, even if it disadvantages our party, we are representing our party before Jesus. I think that's true. A friend of mine said, I think it's good and right for Christians to speak against racial injustice, to fight for racial justice. And I think it's good and right for Christians to speak against abortion, to speak for the life of the unborn. His question is, but where is the pulpit that addresses both? Why just one and not the other? Right, too often we use scripture to, advocate, to support the policies we care about, and so we become selective, as opposed to having scripture speak to all policies, all issues, all platforms, all candidates. So instead of saying one party is Christian and the other isn't, I think it's better to say, as Eric did in his paper, that in both parties there are things to accept, there are things to reject, and there are things that can be redeemed, all under the authority of Scripture. That there is no Christian party. Both parties need to be critiqued. I don't think Jesus would have been a Republican or a Democrat. Eventually, we will and have voted for our candidate, but we recognize that there may be Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, faithful, devoted Christians who vote for the other candidate. So how do we move forward? Well, I'd like to look back at John 13, 34, 35. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We are to love one another as Jesus has loved us. And I think that phrase 
should be understood in two ways. That Jesus is the standard that we're to love the way Jesus loved, and that Jesus is the source. That having received his love, we now can love one another. This command was given right after Jesus demonstrated what he just commanded by washing the disciples' feet. He's leaving his disciples, and it said that Jesus wanted to show them the full extent of his love. And so he, he got down and he washed their feet because he's, he's saying goodbye. I, he's not going to see them anymore. And he wants them, he wants to say, I love you while he has the opportunity. And then afterwards, he says that he's given them an example that they should also wash one another's feet. He essentially says, I love you and now I command you love one another. So what does loving like Jesus look like? <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, it looks like washing feet. It looks like taking the low place, doing the things other people don't want to do. It's being a servant. It looks like sacrifice. Foot washing was a sacrifice. But even more profoundly, Jesus' foot washing in John 13 pointed to the cross where Jesus would serve and cleanse his disciples ultimately. And then a couple of chapters later, Jesus said, Greater love has no one than this, that he, that, that he lay down his life for his friend. And that's exactly what Jesus did, lay down his life. No greater love than this. So what does it look like to love like Jesus? It looks like the cross. It looks like dying so that somebody else can live. It looks like giving up time, money, reputation, position, health, maybe even our own lives for the benefit of others. Against the background of politics and power, winner-take-all mentality, Christian lives are shaped by the cross. Dying is part of Christian living. And against the background of polarized, unwilling to work together, cancel culture, we're not just willing to not have our way. We're to wash feet. We're to use whatever power we have for the purpose of serving others. Dying. Serving, washing feet. That's how Jesus loved. So Trinity, he commands us, love one another like this. The problem is, we don't. And even if we try, we can't. I think the command actually exposes how much we're not like this. It exposes our selfishness, our our self-protection, our self-promotion. It exposes we don't really care for other people, not like that. We fail. Jesus' explicit and direct command. We can't. We can't do this. I can't do this. We don't have this kind of love. And that's why Jesus is both our standard and our source. The foot washing was first an act of love. 
He, he loved his disciples and he loves us. And he puts a towel around his waist and gets down on his knees and he washes our feet. And when he was accused, he kept silent and he let the lashes fall and he hung on the cross. He was crushed for our iniquities and by his wounds, we are healed. What we don't do, won't do, can't do for others, Jesus does for us. And not only does he love us, but he, he wants us to experience this love. We need to. It's not enough to just hear it and cognitively agree with it. It has to move us and melt us. And that's why I think Jesus didn't just say he loved them. He washed their feet. They experienced his loving act. Maybe like some of you, uh, our family signed up for Disney Plus during this COVID season, and we saw Hamilton. Actually, we saw it twice because we enjoyed it. Hamilton has a restless striving. He's always trying to make something of himself, right? He's never satisfied. He's always writing like he's running out of time, like he's running out of time. He's always trying to make more of himself. Later in his life, he has a long-standing adulterous affair, which eventually he makes public and it destroys his reputation and it destroys his wife, Eliza. She wants nothing to do with him anymore. And then a little after that, his son dies in a duel trying to defend Hamilton's honor. And Hamilton is broken. He is crushed by shame and guilt and grief. And he's forced to face his failures especially to his wife, Eliza, where he sees just so much pain, a lot of which he has caused. But in the grief, in the sorrow, Eliza reaches across the chasm. She grabs his hand and she extends forgiveness. And then they go through the unimaginable grief of losing their son, but they go through it together. And after Hamilton dies, she picks up the work that he has done and builds his legacy. You know, like Hamilton, we've hurt people, even people that we care about. We haven't always been faithful. During this pandemic, maybe it's not hard to see, we haven't loved. We, uh, we're self-focused self-protective, self-serving. We've not loved the way Jesus has called us to love. And perhaps during this election season, we've been critical, dismissive, maybe divisive, self-righteous, even toward other members of the body of Christ. We can repent. We can repent, and as we do, we recognize that Jesus reached across the chasm. He takes our hand, and he extends forgiveness. He was crushed for our iniquities, and by his wounds, we are healed.
what we don't do for others, he has done for us. In 2003, the Black Eyed Peas wrote a song inspired by the anxiety of post 9-11 America. The song touches on issues of terrorism, racism, gangs, intolerance. They sang, what's wrong with the world, mama? People living like they ain't got no mamas. I think the whole world's addicted to the drama, only attracted to the things that'll bring them trauma. Overseas, yeah, we're trying to stop terrorism, but we still got terrorists here living in the USA, the big CIA, the Bloods and the Crips and the KKK. If you only have love for your own race, then you only leave space to discriminate. And to discriminate only generates hate. And when you hate, then you're bound to get irate. Madness is what you demonstrate. And that's exactly how anger works and operates. Man, you got to have love. This will set us straight. Take control of your mind and meditate. Let your soul gravitate to the love, y'all. Father, 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 help us. Send some guidance from above. Because people got me questioning, got me questioning, where is the love? Where's the love? Where is the love? Where is the love? You know, in 2020, people are questioning, where's the love? And we want to say, hey, it's here. It's here in the church. Here's the love in Jesus. This is where you can find love. But unfortunately, I don't know if that's true. I fear that this is not how people view the church. This is not how people experience the church. Jesus said, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And then he prayed, May they be one, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you loved me. To repeat the words of Andy Stanley, your political candidate will win or lose based on how American citizens vote on a Tuesday in November, but the church wins or loses. The community wins or loses, and in some way our nation wins or loses based on how Christians love each other. So here, Jesus' command, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And we can rejoice with those who rejoice. And we can grieve with those who grieve. Because that which binds us together, oh, may it be far greater than that which pulls us apart. Let me pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we do repent, I repent, for our lack of love, for our lack of being able to show the world how true and real you are. We have not fairly represented you. Lord, would you forgive us? And I pray, Lord, that by your grace, your spirit and love would flow freely here at Trinity and and across churches in America, that Lord, instead of all the divisiveness and all the 
criticism and all the judgment and the demonizing, Lord, that you would bring us together, even as, even as President-elect Biden calls us to come together. Lord, may the church be the prime example, the beautiful picture. May the world see in the church what it can't so see anywhere else, how we can be united and how we love and how we care that the world would have reason to believe that you really are the Son of God. Lord, please, have your way here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.